0: I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have his heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death." nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystals flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord of God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. This is God's word. All right. Thank you, Ty.
1: And um, let's pray once more. Father, please um, enable the word to penetrate into our hearts and speak to us deeply. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well... Today is a typical um, Andy sermon. It's the prototypical Andy sermon, um, in which I will spoil many movies. Um, and these are my favorite types. And I'm sorry, but it's Easter, and uh, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run in my lane today. So, um, what makes a good movie? That's my uh, That's my question. There are a lot of definitions out there. We love when it turns out good in the end. When it's uh, entertaining and cool. Uh, John was talking this week about the hero's journey that is uh, in so many movies, right? Where the there's the struggle and they overcome the odds. There's a conflict. But the story ends well and the good guys win. And those movies will always exist uh, because there's something we like about how they make us feel. They work. Um, but if you're like me, they can be a little bit frustrating because they lack nuance. They don't quite align with the reality that we live with. Reality is far more complicated because sometimes the good guys don't just win. And sometimes we want to revel in a little bit of judgment. Hmm. judgment. And you go, no, I don't like movies about judgment. And there's no good movies about judgment. Yes, yes, there are. <laughs> Have you ever seen a World War II movie or something? like? Yeah, there's always judgment. Um, you know, whenever there's a movie about anyone terrible, there's always judgment. Probably my, my favorite, um, like, yeah, one of my favorite judgment movies is Breach. And Breach does not end in redemption. It ends, for some people, well, but in the end, the bad guy is exposed as having a far darker motive than you ever would have thought. It doesn't get better. And it feels good to see And remember that, that people with terrible motives get the judgment that they deserve. Now, some of you know my favorite movie to bring up in times like this about judgment. What is it? Trolls. Trolls, yeah. Um, The ultimate movie about judgment is Trolls. If you've seen it, it is 99% happy, happy joy and lots of color, right? Just, Just a lot of parties and yay, Just tons of it, except for when the terrible woman and the traitor are swallowed by the earth. And then when I was at the movie, we were at the movie early on, the whole audience goes, yeah! And I thought, we live in a sick world. (laughs) 99% of this movie is happy and joy. The moment the the earth opens up and swallows the, the terrible people we all cheer, what is that's Old Testament judgment? And and no, it's Old Testament judgment. Literally, that's it's from the Old Testament. That's that's where this idea comes from. It's a theme of the Old Testament. That it's a personification of the earth in which it does its justice and it immediately brings someone into death, which is what they deserve. I mean, this is the book of this is the Exodus narrative, this is Korah's rebellion, this is. Old Testament judgment. And when we see it in a movie like Trolls, we cheer. Interesting. Now, the best movies, the best movies are known for a little bit of both. (laughs) I'm not even gonna talk about this one right now. Just gonna show you the picture. (laughs) Just gonna show it to you. Because they engage the complexities of life and they hold on to hope. Do you ever wonder why we think this way? Why, Why do we love stories? Why do we love stories at all? Why do the depths of the stories matter? Why does the nuance of the story matter? Why do we want to connect with it? What is it about us that needs hope? The kind of hope that these stories instill in us. You got it, Louie. But hey, I'm, I'm gonna get to it later, okay. Okay, we here at Mission have been looking at trust in the lives of key figures in the Bible. We started off with Adam and Eve. And then we looked at a lot, of, a lot of big names, David and so on. And last week, we talked about Mary, the mother of Jesus. And this week, we're concluding with John, the apostle. What would a movie about his life look like? So I'm going to tell you a little bit about the story of John and then a little bit about the revelation that he received and then three things about it. That's the day. So here's the storyboard. John, he's the youngest son of Zebedee. And he and his brother are fishermen. Um, and let's see, there's my slide. He and his brother are fishermen. And as were the disciples, Andrew and Peter. Now, when you think of, that's not it. That's not even close to it. There it is. That actually factors in. Now you're all interested, aren't you? Um Have you ever thought about them being fishermen and thought, ah, they're a poor fisherman or something like that? But honestly, this was probably a pretty lucrative business. There's an old mosaic in Galilee and a church, and it's all fish, and it's a fishing scene. Why? Because naturally, this was one of the booming industries of their time. This is how you got wealthy. So naturally, they would have inherited boats and nets and mostly from their father customers because they were positioned well to have a fairly successful life. They were gonna work hard and have a stable life. And then Jesus comes along and they were some of his earliest followers, but they left everything. They literally walked away from their jobs, from their inheritance, from what they were working for, and they left everything to follow after Jesus. And we don't know exactly why. Um, we, we know that Jesus just kind of called them to follow him and they did it. Maybe it was like this divine tug inwardly. Maybe it was just very convincing what he said. Maybe it's a little bit of both. But their journey following Jesus is then laid out in the New Testament, and John tells it in his biography of Jesus that we just call John. And he's applying it to Greek people, and he's telling them all these details. In fact, it's the most detailed biography of Jesus that we have that comes from John. He was there for some incredible moments. Only John tells us about Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, which is where we get the words born again. So if you've ever heard the phrase born-again Christian, that came from something that John knew about and taught us about. John tells us about the wedding at Cana where Jesus turned water into wine, his first recorded miracle and one of the most famous scenes of the Bible. We know about that because John was there and he described it to us. Uh, John tells us in incredible detail about Jesus arriving at Mary and Martha's house after their brother Lazarus died, the conversations that they had the grief that Jesus exhibited, and then his calling to Lazarus to come out of the grave. You know, there are those movies that give you kind of the in-depth story, maybe the documentary where the people who were there tell you about what it was really like. And that's kind of John's book, his gospel. It's giving us that window into who Jesus was. Of course, John was there in the upper room uh, when Jesus was betrayed, and he was at the trials of Jesus. He was at the foot of the cross when Jesus died, when many of the others were who knows where. They had run away at this point. And it was he and Peter who Mary Magdalene ran, ran straight to when she discovered the empty tomb. And John ran to the tomb, and he says in his own words that he believed that Jesus had risen from the dead. He would see Jesus after this. He would hear his instructions to go into the world and make disciples. He was there when the disciples gathered in a room um, and this power like they'd never experienced filled not only the room but themselves. And they began to speak and proclaim about the goodness of God and this crazy thing happened where people from the town who spoke different languages came and they said, I heard you speaking my language. He saw amazing miracles happen through his words and prayers. He saw thousands of people believe in Jesus without Jesus there anymore, which is incredible. And then he lived through some of the most terrible times when his fellow Christians were killed and driven away. He's the last disciple to die. He was the last one left, an old man, when he was sent to an island called Patmos. There it is popular tourist destination now. But he was sent there as a prisoner to die. And there he received what we call the revelation. Um, That name to us has come to hold some kind of dark connotation, right? Um, But the word is, is a positive word. It's revealing something hopeful that's going on behind the scenes. Uh, it's a unique type of literature. Uh, we call it apocalyptic these days, and then from, from which we get the word apocalypse, right? Like, oh, great, the apocalypse. What does that mean? What's apocalyptic mean? It simply means an unveiling. It's, you know, when you, if you go to a play and there's a curtain um, and it opens, that's an apocalypse. Um, you get to see what's behind the curtain, And these types of writing are meant to exhibit what's going on in spiritual places behind the natural events that we experience. And what this book was meant to do was to give hope to people who were suffering, who were losing everything. It was very useful for John and the churches that he sent it to because they had a lot of reasons not to trust God. Life was very hard for them. They were beginning to suffer for their faith And the Revelation paints this vivid and dramatic picture of the story of history from God's perspective, sometimes the events they were experiencing, and some things that were to come at the end of the age. The picture is painted like a great allegory or movie. There's dragons and beasts and warriors and animals, and they symbolize things. It's kind of like watching the Lord of the Rings and then learning that. Tolkien had experienced the First World War as a soldier and was observing the Second World War and was writing a story in which he was processing the darkness and the evil that he had seen in his beasts and animals. That's not to say that revelation isn't true. It just means it doesn't correspond directly. You may not see a beast exactly the way it's described in Revelation someday, like coming out of the sea. But there is still something that corresponds to that image that is real. By the way, it was written to people of John's day, so it must have applied to them in a meaningful way. And we make a mistake when we read it through our 21st century mind and think it's going to explain the news on a daily basis. Now, there's many ways we can understand Revelation, but it's Easter, and I'm not going to do that to you, because we should all view the end the same. And the end speaks of the ultimate hope that lays before all of God's people. Revelation is ultimately a hopeful vision. It's meant to sustain people through whatever they're facing, their suffering and confusion, by anchoring them in a beautiful ending revealed before it comes to pass, And remember, Jesus specifically said that ending will only come on the day that his father has decided, and nobody knows when that is. So to consider the trust in God that the apostle John had in his dying days, as he sat on Patmos and received his revelation, we have to meditate on this final vision. And I wanna give you three final thoughts, just what it was, why it matters, and how to live. What, why, and how. So, what the vision was, what it is, still. Um, Ultimately, it's summed up in these words, um, behold, I am making all things new. If someone were to tell you, behold, I got you a new car, right? you would not assume that you were no longer going to drive cars or that you would have a spiritual car-driving experience. You'd assume you were getting a new car, right? A new one, presumably running perfectly, presumably with upgrades from what you'd had before. But you would assume that the idea of a car that you'd had before, you were going to get a new one. Now, before I can say too much about what the vision is, I need to describe what it isn't because many of us for an unfortunate set of set of reasons were taught that the whole creation was going to be disposed of. We heard that it was reserved for fire, but we were not taught that fire burns temporary things and purifies beautiful things. There was an ancient heresy called Gnosticism and, um, A feature of it was that the material world was evil and the spiritual world was good. And we have inherited some of that in our day. That view has a lot of issues and some of them are still very, very common. Maybe you heard the story like this. God made the world perfect. Adam and Eve messed it up when they made a bad decision. We were just talking about this with the kids. There's always that problem that Benny brought up. Why is there a serpent here? Did God not know he was there? That's a problem, not a bad one to bring up at all. Um, You know, God gave us a lot of chances to get our act together, but we keep blowing it and missing the point. But in the end, Jesus will come back and punish all the bad people and retrieve all the good people out. Well, the good ones that say they believe in Jesus. And then he's going to burn the earth and the good people will live with him in heaven. The trouble with that story is that it involves a lot of true things but ignores a lot of important promises. And one of the promises is here in Revelation 21. Notice, all things new is not a reversion back to creation. It's not. Nor is it all things destroyed. It's all things new. We do not end up somewhere else. The holy city at the end of Revelation descends down to us. And notice, it is a city, not a garden. The bad people do not burn with the earth and all that we've made on it. No, those not in the Lamb's book of life are removed from the situation, from the story. They're outside of grace. And that's a lot different than being bad people. They're outside of grace. And those who, who remain in evil are removed from the creation, but the creation itself is renewed and restored. Also, it says in, the, in there, I don't know if you caught this, that the sea was removed. There's no sea, and there's no night anymore. I don't know about you all, but that kind of bums me out when I think about eternity. Like, I like the ocean, and I really like night. Like, stars are great. This is one of those corresponding moments, see? It doesn't have to mean there's no ocean and there's no nighttime. I don't know. But in their day, the sea was terrifying. They did not know what was in it it was the space of the unknown of deep terrors that they did not understand the night is always corresponding in this ancient literature as the time when evil can can come out from the hiding what it's saying here is that those things that terrify us those unknowns the the evil that's under cover will be there no more it doesn't mean you won't ever see the stars let me give you an example of what it might mean, that all things are made new. It might mean that that relationship with your father or mother that's really hard to navigate, where you've made all kinds of effort throughout your lifetime, but it doesn't ever seem to get very far, it seems to be clunky all the way, that it might be made new. That would be true of parents thinking about their children and marriages that all the work that seemed like it never really, you just never got it right, that it might be made new. It might mean that the job that you do that often feels just monotonous and fruitless, like you're just fixing the same old thing again and again, the IT specialist that goes, how many times will I you know, get the website back up, you know, over and over, that it might be an investment into something that will exist forever, without all of the toil and trouble. Why do I say that? Well, the city that comes down has streets. What does that mean? Have you ever thought about that? Streets were invented by us, as, as every element of a city, right? Right? Every element of the city God put us in in the creation and he says to go and develop it to to rule over it. And and we started creating things. We lived out of his image. We made streets and doors and windows and drapes, all sorts of stuff. We made streets and this city that comes down has streets. We are people who have been working on streets for millennia. Think about this. We have made Streets for as long as we've made homes, as long as we've tried to get between different towns, we've been figuring out streets. We figured them out for wagons. We figured them out for cars. Then we figured out that cars were kind of problematic, and we started thinking, how can we make them more livable again? This is why we do Cyclovia, is because people are trying to figure out how can we enjoy the streets again? There's designers, construction crews, maintenance crews. I've got this picture you were all wondering about of Tucson Tamale right here. What what was that about? Well, this this is a vision of Broadway the way it could be, right? You go look at it right now, it doesn't look like that. But this is somebody designing the way it could feel. If you could walk down Broadway again, and if you could enjoy your favorite restaurant, if Tucson Tamale would come back, please, right? Right? It's design. It's implementation. There's all these things we're hoping for. It's streets. I told you a story not too long ago about how Jared and I were uh, taking a walk, and we walked ourselves right into a press conference on accident. That was pretty cool. But the, the guy who was telling a story at that press conference had been working since the 80s for there to be a better street design for downtown links. And he said, he said, it's not perfect, but It's better than it was going to be, right? If the world all burns, then all of that was an utter waste of time. But, as is promised here in Revelation, if that city that descends has streets, then everything we've been working on all these years will be included. Now, why why does that matter? Why does it matter that we get that vision right? Well, because it's tied to the most important belief of the Christian faith, which we remember on Easter. It is not egg boiling or bunnyology. I love eggs and bunnies. I'm so glad to see them. One waved at Michaela today going down the road. There was a bunny suit guy waving. It's very fun. As fun as that is, right, we believe in resurrection. Not only that Jesus died on Good Friday, but he rose from the dead on the third day. We remember the empty tomb, right? I've got, this is the empty tomb in the quarry on a a mountain um, that somebody's recreated. That's what we remember on Easter. And Paul, the apostle, said this. This is my paraphrase. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then Christians are the most pathetic people in the world because all of our hopes are false. False. See, the Christian faith hinges on a few things. Consider these things. Life was made to be good. And the beauties of the world, the relationships we have in this world were meant to be beautiful and to last. Number two, things are not the way they're supposed to be. We sin in our words, thoughts, and our actions. We sin on accident and on purpose and we fail God and other people Therefore, justice is good and necessary. If the world went on as is because of us, it would be terrible. And so we, do, we die and we feel the effects of death. And third, our creator is the only one innocent and powerful enough to solve the problem. Therefore, he takes the demands of justice on himself, bears our sins, and passes through death victorious. Jesus' resurrection means that in Jesus, we can hope for a future where things are the way they're supposed to be. Again, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then there's no victory at the end of the story and it's a false hope. And premise three would would destroy premise one, which would mean if there's no good ending, God didn't have very good plans and intentions. And the whole thing falls apart. I know this. If there's no resurrection, none of it works. There's a lot of skeptical people out there. Um, You've heard me talk about Woody Allen here a lot. And the reason I like to talk about Woody Allen Allen is because he's very clear on his skepticism. There is no point to life. And he'll tell you, um, he has a, a famous quote out there. He says, every hundred years or so, the great toilet of life flushes. And we all spin around just like the dung inside of a toilet and we're gone. And it doesn't matter. It's over and there's nothing more. And he'll say that just as bluntly as possible. But that makes no sense of our longings. For all time, people have felt innately that our lives do matter. That our work is worth doing and worth doing well. That the loves of our lives aren't just temporary. So what do we do if Woody Allen's right? Well, C.S. Lewis has wisely pointed out in Mere Christianity that finite beings who can't know from the, the end from the beginning have to do what is most reasonable. And he says this, look, you have a baby. What do they want to do? They want to eat. They want food. Why? Because food is real, right? You have a duck or a fish. You put it near water. It would like to be in the water, right? Why? They were made to swim, water is real. They want to experience what is real. And C.S. Lewis says, when you look at our longings, the most logical thing to do with them is not to say, ah, all of our longings that drive us through life are false. No, you should look at them and say, well, chances are they point to something real, right? The resurrection of Jesus is a preview of what's to come, as are all of our longings, as is the work of God's Spirit in our lives. The resurrection is the most powerful preview we've ever seen. Here's the creator and hero of the story who enters into our reality and lets sin impact him and death overtake him, But he rose from the dead. He was still a man. He was recognizable. He wore clothing, but he was better, eternal, ascended. And he says, I'm with you always. See, the vision of Revelation is the natural next step from resurrection. If Jesus rose beyond death, but he still has a body, he's still a person, he still exists, and he's active in this world, then we should be too and since god made us in this world to work within it and oversee it and he said that it was good then it is most natural that we should be working and living out of his creational intent we should be investing in the new creation it's most natural that as jesus rose with a resurrection body that's now glorified that the world that god created would exist into eternity but would be made new. And the work of our hands would all be included. That things would be the way that they're supposed to be, that there'd be no more death, no more thirst, no more mourning, no more pain, and no more division. Okay, so how do we live in light of that vision? Say that's true. Sound good? Sounds good. How do we live in light of that vision? I don't want us to live out of a false hope. I'm coming back to Woody Allen for a second here because... People have asked Woody Allen, how do you make so many movies? He's made so many movies. The guy's prolific. How do you, with no motivation, with no hope, how do you, how do, you do all this work? And, he, and this is what he says. He says, you can't live like you have no hope. You have to lie to yourself. You just get up in the morning, lie to yourself, and get something done. So Woody Allen has worked and worked and worked. And his movies are bleak. And they require patience and precision and investment. And all these people have to work for him and act and follow his directions. Everybody's putting in all sorts of work, considering that the toilet will flush any time now and they will die, right? But there's another issue in Woody Allen's life, and that's that Woody Allen's been accused of some pretty dark stuff. See, when there's no meaning in life, then how you treat others doesn't really matter either. Now, all kinds of people do wrong, I know. It's not just the Woody Allens of this world. But only a life that matters demands justice. And discerning justice well must be done in reference to God. Because as in the trials of Woody Allen, he can't say, well, I think this is fine. While somebody says, this hurt me. Who decides if there's no meaning? Which one gets to claim they're being oppressed? Our culture has rightly discovered that lives matter, right? But that belief did not descend to us from evolutionary biology. It's a borrowed concept from good theology, that we were created in the image of God and that we were made for a city where every tribe, tongue, people, and language live together in harmony. That's where we get that idea. And what can't be there? Our text in Revelation said it. What can't be there? The unclean, the detestable, the false, the cowardly, the immoral, the murderous, anything without God at the center, the idolatrous. Those things and people who commit them are driven out by the light. So is God a God of judgment? We're uncomfortable with this except we know we demand it ourselves. We sure hope so, right? Think about the the, the people who have been most evil to you in your life. The, it, You can always tell a person who's been through trauma because they understand the necessity of judgment. Even in trolls, if you're intolerant and if you're a traitor, you will be judged, right? Have you ever seen a great movie where the villain wreaks havoc and it just doesn't really factor in and nobody really acknowledges it or, or does anything about it? They're just kind of equal to the hero in the end, and there's really no transformation. It just all sort of ends in a like, meh, they all go on. <laughs> Sounds incredible, right? I mean, maybe I should write that movie. No, nobody wants to see that movie. Look, you can either be driven by hope or false hope. I don't want to give you false hope. I want to give you hope. But as it turns out, the bleaker view of life, the more skeptical view of life requires more false hope than the one that's anchored in a promise. If you embrace the vision, it can transform you. Otherwise, you just have to lie to yourself. How can it transform you? Well, you can live like a character in the drama who believes the good will prevail. This is the way of describing hope. Hope is essential to life. Fred Rogers, um, who, uh, who, you know, he was speaking about people with disabilities. He really is something he really cared about. And he said, look, um, sometimes we want to say that a person who can't walk or can't partake in modern education, they're disabled. But he said, but what about the people who can't manage their emotions or maintain close relationships, people who are bitter because they've lost hope? And he said, that is a true disability, right? Fred was a Christian. If you catch the vision of Revelation, you will find a hope that transcends the brokenness and looks beyond how it is to the way it someday will be and keeps investing. Now, that can lead someone to maybe check out. that goes, ah, someday, someday it's all going to happen. But that's a misunderstanding of the vision because the vision includes our work. I brought up uh, Tolkien earlier in The Lord of the Rings. Uh, Tolkien was a friend of C.S. Lewis, but Tolkien really, really struggled in life. Um, His friend C.S. Lewis could write and write and write. He was just prolific. He could sit down and write. Actually, Lewis, there was some quote where he said, I feel like my writing just wrote itself. And I'm sure Tolkien was like, Good for you, buddy. That's just great. Because Tolkien struggled to write, it had to be perfect. He was never satisfied and he would get deeply frustrated with himself. And one night he had a dream and he wrote the story when he woke up of a man named Niggle. And niggle is a word for wasting time. And Niggle was trying to create an artistic masterpiece, a tree. And this book, the, the, the story is now in the book called Tree and Leaf, or sometimes it's called Leaf by Niggle. But he would obsess over a particular leaf in this story and he could never finish it until he had to take a journey and get on a train, which clearly refers to the day he died. And he comes to another country, and there he goes through a lot of processes of hearing judgments of himself through these two voices and having to encounter his neighbor who kind of drove him crazy and having to learn how to sort of live with this neighbor And as he's going through all of this, he's told that he can be transported to the other place, and he gets on the train again, and he gets off the train, and he looks out, and he sees a tree. But it's not on a canvas, it's just in the field. And he walks to it, and he realizes it's absolutely his tree. The leaf that he was working on is right there, but it's more than he ever would have imagined. It's not two-dimensional anymore. It's real. It's three-dimensional. And in fact, not only that, it clearly has the influence of his neighbor who was always bothering him, but he kind of liked that influence on it. It looked better. And he looked beyond the tree and realized that behind it was a forest of trees that was all the background of that painting he'd ever imagined and more. And it was And he could walk into it and experience it and really live within it. See, that's the hope that stands at the end of the Bible. And Tolkien knew that hope. That's why he dreamed it. He'd read the book of Revelation. He was a Christian. Your work ends up in the new creation after all the toil, and it's not in vain after all. And that can fuel you to do your daily work. That is why he finished the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit. See, catching the vision allows you to operate out of real hope as opposed to a false hope that skepticism demands. Catching the vision motivates you to work with all your heart, not to simply sit back and wait. And finally, it points you to the one at the center of the the vision, and that's Jesus. He is at the center of Revelation City. The river of life flows from his throne. He's the one that everyone worships, And his name is on everyone's foreheads, which means that they find their identity in him. The Garden of Eden was a place of worship that God sent people out of. But now the garden and the city, everything that people built, are one. And you walk with Jesus in the middle of everything that you've worked on throughout your life. The people there in that city love Jesus so much because he satisfied the longings of their souls and he's passed through death for our sins. So I've already mentioned, but one of my favorite movies, right, is The Iron Giant. In it's something like a man from another world enters into the human world and the humans do not understand him. They're afraid of him. They turn against him and they declare war against him. They aim the most devastating of their weapons at him, not realizing that when they strike him, they will kill themselves. And the giant looks down at these hateful people who want nothing to do with him, but he knows he is more powerful than them and he can put himself back together. So rather than allow them to destroy themselves, he flies up and he takes the brunt of their weapon on their behalf. And what happens to the people in that, in that film is those who can see it, those who see that he was better than them and that he did that on their behalf, they're transformed. Their relationships are better. They love each other more. Those who humble themselves are given a better vision of themselves than ever because of what he did for them. Now, that's just a great movie. That's just a great movie. Why is it so great, though? because it echoes the greatest story ever told, not only of an otherworldly machine, but of the actual creator of our universe who entered in, who we turned upon, who looked at those who sin against him and each other and instead of letting us destroy ourselves, taking the death we pointed at him and bearing it himself. And then he rises from the dead because he's more powerful than we are and because he loves us and he's inviting us in if we'll just be transformed by his grace. In doing so, he exposes our sin like no book of rules ever could. Because when we see what he's done for us, it it shows us the justice that we deserve as well as his love. The elements of a great story, the hero and the justice. And if your hearts will open to hear this story and believe it, then you are open to grace. And that's all that's required for your name to be in the Lamb's book of life. That's all it takes. All you have to do is receive what he has done for you by faith and let that hope enliven your soul. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he foretold the end from the beginning. He said, this is my body when he took the bread. This is my body that was broken for you. He took the cup of wine at the table, and he said, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of many. They didn't know what he was talking about, but he was talking about his death. And then he said, I tell you the truth, I'll drink this again with you in my kingdom, which was him telling them exactly what he would show John in the vision of Revelation, that someday the city would come down and he would be in their midst and they would enjoy each other hearts pure, everything made new. Tonight, you're welcome by faith to come and receive Jesus. He's our hope, the one who rose from the dead. This table is for you. I will pray and there will be two minutes of silence. And after that, we do just a few simple things. We do what the Christian church has always done. We put our money together in a fund to, to help the work of the church and we come forward and receive the Lord's Supper. Who is this for? It's for anyone who's willing to receive God's grace and be in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then we're going to eat dinner together because that's a little foretaste of the kingdom, of what it's going to be like when all people, nations, tribes, and tongues get together. We just reenact it on a small scale and look forward to the day. I'm gonna leave two minutes of silence after I pray before we take the Lord's Supper. And that time is just for you to reflect and pray and invite Jesus to be your hope. So pray with me. Father, I am thankful for the chance to be here to tell this story. Thank you for writing this story. Thank you for impressing it upon our hearts. I pray that we would tell it to ourselves and to others that we would be people of hope, people who work hard, people who love well, and people who believe the best is yet to come. Would you do that inside of us? Would you instill that hope deep within our souls? And I pray that you would guide us now as we pray.